And the girl just said to him, hey, if you're this smart about this business, how come you're not rich? Which is a really weird question, right? Like, in other words, if you know a better way to do things, how come you haven't done them and gotten made a ton of money off of it? He literally said, you're right. And that was how he started the business that I got to know him through that was quite successful. And so I'm listening through the same thing. And, and it was kind of that same. I mean, he didn't ask me that, that question, if you're so smart, why are you not rich? But it was essentially the same thing. I'm sitting here complaining about the other 200 academics in the world who all influence each other and push thoughts forward and what have you. And I'm complaining about how there's very little utility to that. It's not going over. And he was essentially saying, well, you're complaining about it. Why aren't you doing something about it? But what most people need to stay motivated on a day-to-day basis is a reminder that the work they do matters to someone. Not just matters, period, which is where why stops, but matters to someone, which is where who begins. And so often the way to get motivated is to solve that question for yourself. Who is served by the work that I'm doing? Or who is served by the work my team is doing if you're in a leadership role? And then how can I remind myself of that on a regular basis? Those are the things, that's the who. And those are the things when I'm on like a rainy day struggling to get work, I don't go look at my little certificate of being number 48 in Thinkers 50 and go, okay, well, it's time to get to work. I go look at those who stories, right? And I look at who could be affected by this project we're working on. And I think about that. If you're listening to this, I bet you're the same way. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another unlock moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. The forward-thinking ideas and best-selling books of one of the world's leading business thinkers, Dr. David Berkus, are helping leaders build their best team ever. He's the best-selling author of five books about business and leadership. His books have won multiple awards and have been translated into dozens of languages. Since 2017, David has been ranked multiple times as one of the world's top business thought leaders. His insights on leadership and teamwork have been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, the Financial Times, Bloomberg Business Week, CNN, and the BBC. And his TED Talk, The Simple Way to Inspire Your Team, has been viewed over a million times in just eight months. A former business school professor, David now works with leaders from organizations across all industries, including PepsiCo, Fidelity, Adobe, and NASA. His most recent book, Just Out, is called Best Team Ever, The Surprising Science of High-Performing Teams. Talent doesn't make the team, the team makes the talent. Why are some teams more motivated, innovative, and successful than others? 
Why do some groups of talented people fall short against lesser teams? And how do you go about building a high-performing team? I'm appreciating more and more how the Unlock Moment is a powerful route to discovering your deepest underlying sense of purpose. I'm looking forward to hearing about how David thinks about purpose, how you find it, how you use it, and how you leverage it in the team. And of course, what his Unlock Moment was on his own journey to the person he is today. Let's dive in. David Burkus. It is my great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Oh, no, thank you so much for having me. Fantastic. Thank you so much for uh, uh, accepting the invitation. And you're dialing in from Tulsa, Oklahoma today. Tulsa, Oklahoma, yes, where it is, uh, it is hot and humid, but I can't complain about that because I, I know what you're going through and usually without the benefit of air conditioning, right? Exactly. No air conditioning <laughs> here in the UK, that's for sure. So David, where do we need to start in your journey to understand your Unlock Moment and a bit more about the person you are today? Yeah, well, I suppose the best place to start would be pretty far back when I was 16, 17 years old in, in high school, right? Finish, finishing up primary school, I knew I wanted to be a writer, right? So I was the English major nerd. I was the editor of the literary magazine and on the school newspaper and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and I went to, to undergraduate, so to, to university for English and creative writing as an undergrad. And it was in my uh, either third or fourth year, to be honest, I don't remember because it was more than two decades ago, uh, that, that I had to take classes more from the journalism school and found narrative, narrative nonfiction, uh, science writing, that sort of thing, read kind of early Gladwell New Yorker pieces and, and some of the early, like when you're 19 years old, you have no idea that nonfiction is more than textbooks, right? You, in your mind, you think books are like snackable commercial fiction like Harry Potter or classic things like The Great Gatsby, and that's it. And, and then nonfiction is textbooks. And so the idea that there were people writing things that were true, right? True stories, true science, et cetera, but using storytelling tactics or whatever was like, I didn't know that existed. So then I kind of recommitted like, that's actually what I want to write. Now, a couple, another thing happened personally, which is that um, I met the woman who would become my spouse in undergrad, like college sweethearts type of situation. Uh, but she wanted to go to medical school, which meant, as, as you know, because you went through it too, that's a lot of studying, which meant that I either needed to find something to do by myself to kill time or needed to find something to study along with her. Um, so since I wanted to be a science writer, wanted to write about social science and human behavior and what have you, um, I started in a graduate program in organizational psychology just so that I would have something to study. Um, at first, I thought, I, and write about. At first, I thought I was going to do a master's, but that was two years, med school's four. So I kept going into the PhD because why not, <laughs> right? Um, and in an interesting way, what that led to was that put me down the path to, to an academic career, right? I ended up teaching in business school, I ended up doing research, publishing them in the journals that only get read by 15 people um, and what have you, which I would say to 17-year-old me was probably not the iteration that I wanted, um, but it was working okay, right? I was I had a had a solid job, was teaching, what have you, ranked in Thinkers Fifty, and all of that sort of stuff. So the academic career didn't look all that bad, but it wasn't as it wasn't exactly what seventeen year old me thought I was going to be doing. If that makes any sense, that feels like a real connection with my seventeen year old uh, looking at medical school, looking at being a doctor, and having a view of what that was. My parents weren't doctors, so I didn't I didn't really, I think, looking back, have at all an accurate perception of what being a doctor was. And it took me another 10 years to kind of figure that out, which was when I then started to, you know, my unlock moment in my late 20s was, was late stage of medical school going, is this really what I, what I want to do as a career? 
and 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 it was very striking the difference between the 17 year old view of the world and the 27 view of the world did you find i mean a lot of people who who um progress through quite an academic route you're kind of on a bit of a treadmill and and you find yourself in a place many years kind of further on did you feel as though you'd you'd really controlled the direction of travel through that path or had it been a little bit kind of brownie in motion on the way through if you like yeah, I, I mean, it's probably a little bit of both. I, I know exactly the treadmill that you're, you're talking about, right? My, my joke to my wife going to medical school and then residency and what have you is like, is I, I used to joke like, your life is so easy. You made a decision when you were 18 and that charted the next 10 years of your life were just decided, right? You got to do this, then this, then this in order to get to that thing, right? And for me, it wasn't that so much, right? I mean, I was, I was in the, originally the master's program was part-time. I was still working. I was working in the pharmaceutical industry and it was sort of part-time fascination thing to study, thing to maybe write about if I become a writer one day. Um, but it was when I decided to start first adjuncting and then accept a full-time position inside a university, then it was, okay, well, if you're going to do that, then you need to publish this many papers in a year and you need to go to attend this conference and be a member of this society and you need to do this and this and this. And eventually, like even, you know, attending the, the fancy soiree parties at something like Thinkers 50, like it was, it was fun, and it, but it was things you did in order to advance your career, not necessarily things you did because they're what you wanted to do, Right. And so you, you, there's a lot of things, just, just like, I, I suppose, being a doctor, right? Like, um, there are things you have to do just to get the credentials in order to, do, even if you wanted to be a doctor, there's things you have to do that you don't want to do. You have to do because they empower the other. And that's, that's where I sort of felt like on a, on a treadmill, right? There's certain boxes that have to be checked in order to be a B-school professor that aren't actually that fun. When you were talking at the beginning about writing, and I'm interested about this idea of purpose. So, so when you were coming through and you, 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 know, you started your, 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 your story quite early because there was a sort of underlying desire to write and at some point write nonfiction, did you feel that you kind of kept hold of that spark of purpose on the way through this journey? Or did you feel at some point you started to lose a little bit of the why you were doing what you were doing? No, I, I mean, I would say I held it. What was interesting is how little people in my world cared, right? So, so, so what I loved about that nonfiction social science writing was that it was just as entertaining to me. I still read far more of it than I do fiction, but it was just as entertaining to me as a great story, right? Um, to use someone like Gladwell, who what's funny when you actually know the science is not actually all that accurate, but that's, we could do a whole other podcast on that. Um, but he's a brilliant storyteller and just as entertaining to listen to as to read a classic novel, right? And so it was entertaining, but also useful, right? There was something you could do. I can put this into practice. I can improve my life by reading this, which is not what a textbook is. A textbook is pure utility. Well, actually, depending on the subject you're studying, no utility, but you got to get the credit to graduate college. But let's assume you're interested in the subject. Pure utility, no entertainment. The fact that they blended both of these, I thought was fascinating. I can express myself, use storytelling techniques, be creative, and also helpful to people, right? And so even in my academic career, I sought to do that. So for example, even before I'd finished uh, the doctoral program and became a tenure-track professor, um, I started a podcast before they were cool. No offense. Um, 2009. 2009, when you had to like manually upload F the audio files and do all of this crazy coding yourself to create the RSS entry and all of that, um, we started a podcast. And it was just designed to like interview the people who wrote the books that I was fascinated with. And it was aimed at practitioners. It was aimed at senior leaders, middle managers, people doing the work of leadership, 
not aimed at the academic community for whom you have to write a long, boring, peer-reviewed paper and what have you, right? But nobody cared. Like you can't put that you've interviewed the world's leading thinkers on all of these things on your CV for a promotion. You have to put that you wrote something for the Journal of Business Ethics, blah, 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 right? Um, and so that was the dilemma, right? I still found a way to keep that sort of spark alive. The problem was I found myself in a community that did not care, right, about all of those things. Meanwhile, you're getting emails from people who are reading, listening to the podcast, reading the articles you're putting out, and they're finding it useful. But the people who determine the success or failure of your career don't care at all unless it's locked behind something you need a library database membership that your university pays for to read, which means 15 people read it, you know, maximum. And then people cite it without even reading it, which is a whole other thing. Interesting. So the unlock moment, this idea of a moment of sudden remarkable, unexpected clarity about something that helped you to determine the path ahead. What, what comes to mind when you think of that idea of an unlock moment for you? Yeah, so, so mine was a dinner conversation in September of 2018. Um, and, and it was actually hearing someone else's unlock moment and then realizing sort of the similarities. So uh, I'll leave him nameless just because I don't know how much of his story he would want to share. But he was in, um, in publishing too. I had written two books by then and was trying to all, for practitioners and was trying to also do the academic path and what have you. And I was having dinner with him and I was complaining about exactly what I was complaining about. The fact that these people over here don't care. These people over here find it quite useful and what have you. And he told me a story about his first two books and they were both wildly successful, but it felt like his publishers didn't care. The deals he was getting wasn't all that respectful and what have you. And he told me this story about how he was on a date, which I wouldn't recommend complaining about this on a first or second date with somebody, but he was on a date with a girl. And he kept talking about how he was, that publishing is doing this wrong and doing this wrong and doing this wrong. And the girl just said to him, hey, if you're this smart about this business, how come you're not rich? Which is a really weird question, right? Like, in other words, if you know a better way to do things, how come you haven't done them and gotten made a ton of money off of it? Uh, and he, he literally said, you're right. And that was how he started the business that I got to know him through that was quite successful, right? And so I'm listening through the same thing. And, and it was kind of that same. I mean, he didn't ask me that, that question, if you're so smart, why are you not rich? But it was essentially the same thing. I'm sitting here complaining about the other 200 academics in the world who all influence each other and push thoughts forward and what have you. And I'm complaining about how there's very little utility to that. It's not going over. And he was essentially saying, well, you're complaining about it. Why aren't you doing something about it? And so after that dinner, I mean, that night, I'm sort of tossing and turning and thinking about through. And essentially, that was what led to me leaving uh, the university altogether. So by the end of that, you know, that was mid-semester, if you think about academic semesters. By the end of that semester, I had told them I'm not renewing my contract for full-time. I'm happy to look at part-time, but I'm going to focus in on this. Um, just by, by right before COVID, I was pretty much done entirely. I still technically teach one class for in a, in a what we call a professional doctoral program, but it's because of the professional part of it, right? I'm, I'm teaching middle managers and senior leaders in an executive program, um, not teaching MBA students or undergrads or what have you. But that was the moment I said, okay, forget it. I'm, I'm going to focus wholeheartedly in on speaking specifically to middle managers and things. I'm going to accept conference invitations to you know, trade associations you've never heard of, because let's be honest, most people don't work for a business 
that is influenced by the writings of 200 esoteric academics about business and strategy and what have you. They work for a boss that maybe graduated university and that's it uh, and probably had very little management training and what have you. And if I can write to them and I can put out content to them, I can actually help more people have a positive experience at work and have more people find my work entertaining but also useful than if I write for this audience over here. So it was it was sort of that, I mean, it was that dinner, it was watching his unlock moment that unlocked that whole thought process in me and was the beginning of the end of my academic career. I was doing a workshop yesterday for um, a big institution in London about the unlock moment. And we were talking about how an unlock moment is a moment of clarity of something that you know that you didn't know or you weren't clear on before. Not necessarily a moment where you've made a decision or taken an action you haven't done before. Can you articulate what you think you knew after that moment that you didn't know before? What I think I knew after that moment was how little those 200 people who you write to when you're an academic, and I'm making up 200, I have no idea what the actual number is, how little it actually mattered, right? Like I had this model of the world that the way you do it is you grow in your academic career and 30 years into your academic career, all of your peers say you're one of the smartest, most influential people. And then you get invited to Davos and all of this sort of stuff. And, and that's great. And, and I don't mean to disparage that because some of my good friends are still in that process, right? Are 40 year academics and their work is just now hitting mainstream and what have you. The unlock moment for me was A, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it was actually really a couple of things. Number one, it's really unlikely you're going to climb to that top of that hill anyway. But even if you do, it kind of doesn't matter because it's even more unlikely that your work's going to hit that mainstream. And what you can do instead is just go right to the mainstream. Just go right and expect, accept the speaking invitations to the International Card Manufacturers Association, which is a real trade association for the people involved in printing credit cards and, and other like and membership cards and named Real Trade Association employs thousands of people. And when you speak directly to the managers who meet once a year to talk about card manufacturing, right, you end up teaching them how to be better managers. And that makes the dozen or so people that they lead, that makes their life better. And, and over time, you probably hit more people in a 30-year career and make more people's work life just a little bit better than climbing this impossible mountain, impressing these really esoteric group of people and what have you. And that's what I wanted, right? What I actually wanted was to be entertaining and useful. And to do that, it was the decision was I need to be entertaining and useful to these specific people because these people's opinion over here doesn't matter as much as I thought it did. So at the heart of it, there was something about also a clarity of what you wanted, what your outcomes were, what, what you wanted to achieve and the way you wanted to do it. Yeah. And a clarity of purpose, right? That, that my who is, like I joke now that, that what I want to do, I, the, the nice way to say it, and you read it in the bio, is to help people do their best work ever. But the truth of it is I'm just, I'm trying to make work suck less for more people, right? I'm just trying to make people's, work is so central to our lives. You're never going to escape it, right? You might be independently wealthy and you'll still go do things. You'll still try and be productive. So work is so central to our lives. It's too important. And yet it's terrible for so many people, right? And my sort of 
intrinsic purpose, my pro-social purpose, which is the term I use in the book, my who are the people who have to go to work every day, right? And if I can speak directly to them, I can actually stand a better chance of making their work better than to have this broad esoteric conversation at a Davos or something like that uh, about the macro view of job strategy and AI and other, this is great. Like that's a great conversation. That's not what lights me up. Right. What lights me up is knowing is getting the email from the manager who said, hey, I read your book and I applied this activity and my team loves it. And we do it as a weekly ritual right now. Like that is actually more inspiring to me than this other thing. And there's something I think you, you, you referenced it there. I think it's one of the most interesting things about um, your perspective on on management and leadership and teams is lots of people talk about finding their why, you know, go and, go and read Start With Why by Simon Sinek, all the rest of it. Um, in organizations, there are why coaches, um, which I discovered when I spoke to Paul Epstein on this podcast, who was the why coach for the San Francisco 49ers. Um, and you're talking about find your who. So unpack that. What, what do you mean by find, find your who? Yeah. And, and, and I'll be honest, because of the sort of clickbaity nature of the internet, the, te- the TEDx talk takes a much more adversarial script on this idea that it's not about why, it's about who. What I would really say is that the best answer to a why is a who. Humans are social creatures. We were designed to be in community. Now, depending on whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, that just changes the size of the community, right? But we were designed to be in community. And so it's no surprise that the way we judge whether or not we're making an impact on the world is who we can see is affected by our work, right? And and unfortunately, organizations, because they're doing big things, that's why there's hundreds of people working for thousands of people working for the same company. They have a bigger goal than just that sort of who. Um, They focus on that why, the broader mission. We're going to disrupt this industry. We're going to, you know, solve this massive problem. And that's great. I'm not disparaging any of that. But what most people need to stay motivated on a day-to-day basis is a reminder that the work they do matters to someone. Not just matters, period, which is where why stops, but matters to someone, which is where who begins. And so often the way to get motivated is to solve that question for yourself. Who is served by the work that I'm doing? Or who is served by the work my team is doing if you're in a leadership role? And then how can I remind myself of that on a regular basis? So if you think about, I'll give you my example, right? If you think about my unlock moment, it was actually when I moved from a why, which is I want to have these leading thoughts and be a thought leader and change the world of management. Really, I just wanted to make work not suck, right? And the who is every middle manager, every senior leader who thinks a little bit differently about how to create a better work experience for their team and get better results, you know, as a downstream effect, get better performance out of them, but make that that world of work a, a little bit better. And what like it's great i was numbered 48 and number 46 on thinkers 50 which is actually sort of like saying you were a bronze medalist but whatever um it's great to be on those lists it's awesome i was honored what have you but i value that far less than i value the thank you note or the linkedin message i get every once in a while from a manager who read the book or watched one of my videos or what have you who tried something and say hey it works really really well or who i'm a first time manager and i read this those are the things i actually save i have a whole folder in evernote um, that I say for them because those are the things, that's the who. And those are the things when I'm on like a rainy day struggling to get work, I don't go look at my little certificate of being number 48 and thinkers 50 and go, okay, well, it's time to get to work. I go look at those who stories, right? And I, I look at who could be affected by this project we're working on. And I think about that. And, and if you're listening to this, I bet you're the same way, right? That what really, you probably can't recite the company you work for's mission statement. You probably don't even know it, right? But you probably remember that thank you note from a customer, client, a stakeholder, a fellow coworker, 
you probably remember how much that meant to you. That's your who. That's your, your indicators of that who. And if you keep that at front, most of the time, you'll be far more motivated. So in 2018, you had this unlock moment and that led you to make some different choices about how you're going to focus the work you were doing. Do you remember kind of an, an early story of when you started to feel that this was impacting, that, that you, were, you were landing this who more effectively? Do you remember the first time you started to touch people in a different way from the way you were approaching work differently? Yeah. Um, so so the, the mentality really started in 2018. Um, and unfortunately, I had already, not unfortunately, because I still love it, but the conversation, the unlock moment happened in September of 2018. In May, so a few months earlier, I had released my third book, which was all about, it's, it's a very, it's one of my favorites still. They're sort of like children though. You're, they're all your favorites. Um, but it was about the science of, of networks and social networks and how organizational networks work and, and what have you. It was sort of a combination career book about your professional network, but organizational book about how your organization really runs and information. Very esoteric. Uh, some people found it useful, not so useful. Um, and then I was working on a couple different ideas around purpose and around mission and what have you when COVID hit. And when COVID hit, an interesting thing happened to me, which was that the publisher of my second book, which was another esoteric, macro, high-level future of work book um, about all these different policies and procedures, that book had a, a little section in it about remote work. And isn't it kind of crazy how these companies make it work uh, without having a home office and what have you? And the publisher of that book reached out about two months into COVID and said, hey, you know, I don't think 15 days to slow the spread is going to take 15 days. And so we're, we're thinking about trying to publish something on remote work and being useful. And so um, I said, they were like, were you interested in writing a book on that? And I, I had a conversation with a few of those managers that were both personal friends and fans of my work, et cetera. And I realized just how much of a need there was for that, right? I was familiar with the research. I had connections because I'd interviewed some of these companies. And it was one of those like, well, here's what I would want to work on, but here's what the world needs of me right now, which is I didn't plan on being a remote manager. I didn't plan on being a hybrid manager. And yet here I am. So we wrote that book as fast as we can. That was called Leading from Anywhere. And it was a very, very different book, right? The first three books of mine are very much me pretending to be Malcolm Gladwell, right? Opening story. Let's review the research. Let's close with another story. Open up a little hook that keeps you to the next chapter. This one was very different, right? This one was like key principle, research that supports it, and then take away, take away, take away, try this, try this, try this, activity, 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 very, very applicable, right? And the response to that was overwhelming, overwhelmingly positive. I mean, I'm sure it was negative too, but I don't read my own Amazon reviews. Um, but, it, but it was different. It was different than, hey, you've made me think in a new way. It was, oh my gosh, I did this activity. It was so helpful. And so getting that feedback, so this would have been, it came out in January, 2021. Uh, and so February, March, April, 2021, getting all of that feedback made me realize this is actually how I need to be writing and putting ideas out into the world forever. Right. And I, I give you all those timestamps, by the way, to, just because of how long it took, right? Like there's a difference, I think, between the unlock moment and, and how long it takes for you to feel that you're actually aligned with that new purpose, that new, with the, for me, it was almost three years, two and a half years, right? And I was still doing little micro pieces of content, but it was that big one um, that really made me realize it. And now that's where I am. The format for that book is the format for every book I'll ever write. That idea that people want the idea, yes, but they want to know how specifically they can apply that. And that's missing from a lot of these esoteric thinkers books. Um, but that's the, the mix of entertaining and useful that I was seeking to be that whole time. And it's a really interesting point and, and, and a question in my mind all the time around 
business academia that I feel as though you know you can get a little bit lost in the in in, in the lecture theatre and 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 uh, detached from the real world of, of of leadership in in that academic world. Having sat on kind of both sides of the table or sort of straddled it, if you, if you like, what are the things that that academic business research does really well and and adds and what what are the things that that kind of getting out of that world and seeing from the other side is helpful to add to the kind of progression of our understanding of how to lead and and, and manage effectively? Yeah. So you know, I, and I'm still a huge. I, I don't mean to trash. If it sounds like I've been trashing, I don't mean to trash academic research. I think the the biggest strength it provides, that truthfully we need deeply, is that an academic paper or a book from a, a more thinker, an academic thinker, what have you will be tested on a large sample and a very diverse sample of people and companies and managers and what have you, right? So we'll know it works universally, or at least as close to universally as possible. Whereas on the other side, in the world that I inhabit, which is books and speaking, what have you, and the other side, you get those sort of CEO memoirs, right? I rose to be the CEO of this company and here's how I did it. Or I started this startup and now it's worth a billion dollars and here's how I did it. And those are useful, but they're a sample size of one. And so your ability to apply their lessons is directly proportional to how similar your situation is to theirs, right? Versus academic, which is a cross-section of stuff. It's a a bit like, you know, you trained as a medical doctor. It's a bit like um, having something that's peer-reviewed evidence-based medicine versus like, you know, your, one of your your spouse or partner's friends said you put oil in your ear when you've got a, you know, excess wax and you're like, what? Well, it worked for me once. Well, that's not, I'm not willing to try it. Right. So that evidence-based approach and the fact that it works on huge sample size, really, really useful. Right. And we need it. I think the challenge and, and not to insult an organization that's been so good to me in the past, the challenge is there's sort of a tedification of all of that right? TED Talks and other ways that we try and really celebrate the ideas. And what's happened is that over time, academics have, instead of thinking about formulating their ideas as now that we know this universally true principle, here's how to apply it. They've formatted as what in, in, in business books in the publishing industry, we literally call this a big idea book. They formulate it as we used to think this, but now this research reveals this, right? And so they're always trying to have this counterintuitive moment. The world says this, the truth is this, what have you. I mean, truthfully, it's part of the reason we have surprising science in the title. Like it's just, it, you could call it clickbait if you want. It's just, and the, and the problem with that is that when you're thinking about how your idea is new and different while also being evidence-based, what you're not thinking about is, uh, is here's how you can kind of apply these different things, right? Here's, here's what to do. Um, and that's what I sort of realized I, I feel like more people know. If anything, the negative comments, and like I said, I don't read the Amazon reviews, but they come through every once in a while. The negative comments of both leading from anywhere and best team ever is somebody will say like, well, yeah, but this is common sense. It is, probably is. Not common practice because the missing piece is how we practice it. And so that's what I've been choosing to focus on kind of ever since because I've seen is the missing piece from that academic world. I still want everything I do. There are pages of endnotes in, in every book that I write. I still want it to be evidence-based. My contribution to the world is to make it practical because I think a lot of the academics aren't doing that anymore. They're just so focused on how it changes thinking and not how it changes behavior. I really like that. that that's that's brilliant, brilliantly articulated. So I'm intrigued by the title of your book, Best Team Ever, The Surprising Science of High-Performing Teams. What is this surprising science? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So now I just said we think this, but really this. Um, you know, in the in the intro, I would say there's two things, right? In the intro, you already hit it one, which is that 
when you look at the research on talent is important, having talented, all thing, all other things being equal, you'd rather have somebody who's high on talent, has the knowledge, skills, and abilities in the role than who doesn't, right? So talent is important, but it turns out that what turns talent into actual results and into performance is the environment that person's in. The company they work for, the resources they're provided, and the biggest one, the team that they're on, the culture, the norms, the habits of behavior of that team. Right. And so that's sort of surprising thing. One is that you cannot fix an underperforming team by adding a new talented player. And of course, everyone who has any sport that they follow and any team that they love can cite an example of that. But we often think, well, that's sports that doesn't apply to business. We just need to, you know, we, we need to win the war for talent as it were. Right. And we need to recruit star players and all of a sudden, no, you need to work on your culture, not an organizational level, but work on your culture at a specific team level. So that's number one. Number two is, I call it my, um, my Tolstoy moment, right? And I don't cite this in the book, uh, but remember, I was an undergrad English major. It's the only reason I'm citing this. You, you know I wanted to be a writer. If you remember the opening line of Anna Karenina, all happy families are alike, and every unhappy family is unhappy in its own unique way. Turns out teams are kind of the same. Dysfunctional teams are dysfunctional for a lot of different reasons. But high-performing teams, teams with a great culture, actually are much more similar to each other than, than they are different. And they're, they're marked by a sense of, and we outline this in the book, a common understanding, psychological safety, and pro-social purpose. We already, we already talked about the pro-social purpose piece, right? They know who is served by the work that they're doing, but they also have that sense of psych safety where people feel free to take interpersonal risks like disagreeing or sharing crazy ideas. They give each other feedback in a way that's task-focused and people don't feel attacked. And then lastly, that common understanding or shared understanding, they know who they're working with. They know how that person wants to work. So they know how to coordinate their work with them as well. There's, you'd be hard pressed to find a high performing team that is low performing in one of those three areas. Uh, but it's pretty easy to find a dysfunctional team that's missing one. The who there is really interesting. Does the high performing team have to share, do the individuals have to share who the who is, or could they each have a different who, but they all know that they've got one? So yes and no. Um, I, I think in a lot of cases, it depends on the type of team, right? So some of the work that I do, for example, are sales teams where they're not really a team, <laughs> to be totally honest. I might have just cost myself some business there, but I apologize. Uh, but what they really are is six salespeople or 12 salespeople who have served individual customers and they're all underneath the same supervisor, right? And they help each other. And so they are a team, but their who is going to be the specific customers they're serving, Right. So the team-wide who might just be customers as a whole, but that's amorphous and that's anonymous. It's their specific one. Other teams like project teams or a lot of teams in other sport roles, it's probably going to be a uniform one, right? Because we work together to achieve this, right? So it really depends on how interdependent what the team is being asked to do. Certainly every purpose is personal and certainly everybody has an individual purpose. But when we're talking to a leader of a team about how best to motivate, um, the level of interdependence on the team is what affects how personal versus team-wide you're going to want to go with what stories you tell and what who you develop. If you want to make your team a high-performing team, don't hire some top talents and insert them into the middle of your team and hope that's going to fix it. Work on your culture. Getting practical, where do people start to work on their culture? What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, I, I think that the two biggest areas to start would be in that common understanding or psych safety, right? Uh, and this is less, I'll just be clear, this is less evidence-based and more based on my anecdotal experience working with lots of teams. What we find is when there's friction and frustrations on a team, they either stem from 
taken for granted assumptions that get violated. You know, the, the audacity of someone who didn't behave the way you expected them to behave, but never told them you expected them to behave, right? We've all been in those situations. Um, that's a common understanding problem. That's a shared understanding problem. I don't understand enough about the preferences and, and the strengths and weaknesses and preferences of my team. And as a result, I'm, I'm making some assumptions about them that then get violated. That's a shared understanding problem. And that can create a really toxic culture. And then the second is that shared understanding, or sorry, that psychological safety piece, right? Which is we don't have a culture where people feel free to express themselves and speak up. We, we want to be nice. And so we chase consensus. And so people actually don't, when their, when their ideas disagree, they don't feel comfortable being like, hang on, I think we're missing something here because there's that preference to be nice. Or, or maybe we're not nice. Maybe if you admit a weakness, we constantly berate you because we see you as our competition for promotion. There's a myriad of different ways that can cause someone to feel unsafe. Um, to, to diverge from the team, but it's a huge indicator of culture. My, my number one question for diagnosing team culture problems and for understanding what's going on, the first question I ask leaders, I mean, obviously there's some warm up things, but the first significant question I ask them is when was the last time someone on your team disagreed with you publicly? And if they can think of one, like that's a good sign, but then we'll ask follow-up questions about you know, how did it go? How did, what did they say? How did you respond? What have you? a lot of times they can't think of one. And that's a huge problem, right? If it's been six months or a year since the last big public disagreement between an in, a team member and a team leader happened, that's really indicative that there's something that leader's doing that's conveying the message that I don't want your divergence. I don't want you to disagree. I don't want your crazy ideas. I just want you to take orders. And that's a problem we need to fix right away. And is it common that the leader thinks that they've got a great psychologically safe culture when they haven't? Yeah, all the time, right? And, there, and it, what's funny is it's, it's very rarely intentional, right? Like 4% of the population are sociopath, sociopaths or psychopaths, right? So 96% of leaders are well-intentioned, right? I don't, I, it's funny because I meet a lot more employees who say they're a micromanager, their boss is a micromanager, than I meet bosses who say they're a micromanager, right? So clearly there's something going on that's unintentional behavior. And it usually manifests in little ways. Like my, my, one of my least favorite is you sometimes, somewhere along the line, we thought this was a great thing to say as a leader, which is don't come to me with problems, come to me with solution. No, I'm sorry, right? Your job is for people to come to you with their problems and for you to help solve them, right? Now, I like the idea of please do enough research to where we can get right into brainstorming solutions, right? But if they, if they already had a solution, they wouldn't come to you to begin with. They would just implement it, right? And so, but saying that can, can convey that this, it's not safe to do that. Um, or the other thing that will happen, and this is even more micro, is people will come with a problem and a, and a leader who is accepting of problems. And what they'll do is they'll immediately go to advice. Okay, here's what you should do. Okay, well, here's a dirty little secret, and I'm sure you find this in your coaching too. If there's a psychological safety problem and your people are coming to you with a problem, a failure, some, something sort of negative, they're not coming to you with the full story. They're coming to you with the extent of the problem they can currently trust you to unbay. And when they're telling you their problem, they're testing to see how much they can trust you. So they're coming to you usually with an easily solvable problem because they don't want to get blamed for a bigger problem. And so when you jump right to advice, well-meaning was not your intention, but when you jump right to advice without exploring the problem, you're solving the problem, but you're also conveying that like, keep coming to me with these little problems. When, you, when they're finished explaining what's going on and you ask follow-up questions, and what else? Uh, tell me more, right? What, what else? You know, anything you say that helps explore the problem a bit further is going to make you realize they came to you with a symptom and not a problem because they didn't trust you yet. 
And the more accepting and the better your response and the more open you are to hearing the full depth of the problem so you understand it, the more they'll trust you in the future. But if you just take a problem at face value, you can very well-meaningly give them a solution and never actually solve the real problem and never actually increase trust. That's really interesting. And when you're hearing people, you know, they're feeding back to you, having, having experienced, have read the book or experienced your, your, your talks and so on, what's, what's the new thinking that's coming through for people that, that's really shifting the way they see the world? Yeah, so I, I think there's two elements uh, that I'm hearing the most first. The, um, the first is around that purpose as a who and getting a lot of great feedback on managers who are, I was working with a manager just today um, and she was asking about, we're trying to improve in this metric um, and I'm trying to figure out how to motivate people to do that. And, and when we started talking about, okay, well, tell me what that metric means and how would you tell your team that improve? It's not, we don't want to improve this metric because it's our job. Whose life is made better by that? And that will be much more motivating. So that's sort of one, right? And then the other is, um, and we sort of hit on this already a bit, which is that psych safety piece, because a lot of people think psychological safety equals trust. And I may have done a bad job of this already in what we've been talking about. Trust is half that. How you respond to that trust is the other half that we, we call respect. And Amy Edmondson, who, who sort of um, did the bulk of the great research on um, on psychological safety. And by the way, who is one of those leaders who spent 40 years of her career working to push this a great idea uphill and it's finally had its moment, right? Uh, but it's a long road uphill. Um, she calls it a climate of mutual trust and respect, which means how you respond as a leader to trusting moments sets the tone for future trust. And I think a lot of people, maybe they realize that, maybe they didn't. But what they don't get at is that it's not about trust falls and personality tests and team building activities to build trust. It's about training people how to respond to the trusting moments that happen. And then over time, trust grows because we responded to a small moment appropriately. So it gets bigger next time and next time and next time. And that grows over time that it's this virtuous cycle or vicious cycle, depending on how we respond. And so I think the big kind of new thinking moment is that that response matters far more the response after trust matters far more than anything I do before trust to get people to take that risk. If people have enjoyed hearing uh, what you're talking about and, and, and the way you, you see the world in management and leadership, how can they find uh, out more about you and how can they connect with you? Oh, so, so this one's really, really easy because I am luckily uh, the only David Burkus I found on the internet. That's not entirely true. I had a Twitter conversation once with another one. Uh, he's like a 24-year-old Hungarian filmmaker. But it's pretty easy to figure out exactly um, who I am. So if you type that into Google, right, um, or if you check out the show notes uh, for this episode, which Gary wants you to do anyway, and by the way, while you're checking those show notes out, like click the little fifth star to leave a five-star review, he'd probably appreciate that as well. Um, while you're in all of that, you could click over to davidburgess.com or type David Burgess into whatever social media you prefer, uh, and, and we'll be there. Fantastic. The Unlock Moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For author and leading business thinker David Burkus, it was realizing that his passion was about reaching people directly that helped him to shape his career in writing and speaking. Do go and order a copy of his new book, Best Team Ever, The Surprising Science of High-Performing Teams, available on Amazon and all good bookstores. David, thank you so much for sharing your story and joining me today on The Unlock Moment. Oh, thank you again so much for having me. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. 
Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on the Unlock Moment.